2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in the letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hurted. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to, uh, to, of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, the dictionary defines the word obsolete very simply as no longer in use or no longer useful. Uh, there are many things in our life that, uh, especially if we're over the age of 25 or 30, that used to be really useful that are not so useful anymore. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, I had a great collection of Disney movies that were uh, VHS tapes. And I you know, was really happy when I got one for my birthday or for Christmas uh, or if someone gave me or let me borrow one, they were really important to me. And now, you know, if you go to a garage sale, you'd see all kinds of VHS tapes, and it's hard to even give them away. Then DVDs came along, and then Blu-rays came along, and now, you know, kind of any form of, you know, digital media is start, starting to become obsolete, where you can stream things on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or whatever the case may be. There's many things that have become obsolete. Another thing that's become obsolete... Uh, back just about 20 years ago, there were still about 2 million phone booths throughout the country. Uh, now you don't see any unless it's you know, some kind of nostalgic decoration that you might find somewhere. Floppy disks. Uh, remember the floppy disks? Every computer used to come with floppy disks. The first floppy disk actually held less than one megabyte of data. Uh, and of course today we have USB drives that can hold like a terabyte of data at a very uh, insignificant cost. Uh, you have GPS. Remember, about 10 years ago, there was one particular Christmas where every time you turn the television on, people were advertising GPS. You gotta have a GPS. And that was like the hot present for that year. And then just a few years later, they became kind of obsolete as people could get directions on their phone. Late 1990s, there was something called internet cafes. I mean, it seems like a crazy thing now, uh, but you'd have these internet cafes where people, if you don't have access to the internet, you'd go to this cafe so you could access the internet and use a computer. 
I mean, it seems, you know, so silly now that when we have uh, internet access right at the palm of our hands at all times. So many things that have become obsolete over the last several years. There's a number of other things like record stores, uh, movie rental stores. Uh, some of you maybe have seen the, the last blockbuster on Netflix. It talks about kind of that shift away from uh, movie rentals, uh, phone books, newspapers, uh, standalone alarm clocks. You know, most of us, you know, maybe use our cell phone to, as an alarm clock. A lot of us don't have regular alarm clocks. And that was even something that was an advancement. Back, you know, several hundred years, about a hundred years ago, uh, when people were getting more involved in the Industrial Revolution, what would happen was if people had to get up at a certain time, uh, there would be someone who would go around and knock on people's doors to make sure they were ready for work. Now, that idea seems kind of silly today. And so there's so many things that used to be useful, used to be meaningful, that have become obsolete. Uh, 2007, uh, co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, introduced the, new, the, the first iPhone, and he made a statement uh, that was pretty profound. He said this, he said, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And really, that's what the iPhone did. It wasn't that there weren't any smartphones, but this type of smartphone that had a touch screen, that had certain capabilities, it was a revolution in mobile computing, and it just really changed everything. It meant that you no longer needed PDAs, personal data assistance, these you know, kind of things that you could use for a calendar or notes. You didn't need those anymore. You didn't need a GPS. You didn't need a standalone iPod. You didn't need to have a phone a, a landline phone. It just kind of changed everything. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is going to describe how the gospel is like that. The gospel changes everything. The gospel makes any other kind of thinking obsolete. The gospel transforms all of life, making all other ways of thinking, believing, and behaving obsolete. In the context of this passage, Paul is going to kind of contrast the old covenant, the law, with the new covenant, the gospel. Now, when we think about the new covenant and the old covenant, we probably don't have the same temptation that these early believers had to follow the law. Most of us are probably not looking at Leviticus and looking at, you know, what kind of seeds we plant in our garden and making sure they don't mix you know, that's probably not an issue for us, but when we think about the gospel and we think about how that should be uh, kind of the center of our lives, sometimes we kind of default to kind of pre-Christian ways of thinking. We often default to things like works righteousness, trying to do life on our own, trying to trust in our own resources. And, and Paul is going to talk about how the gospel, it just changes everything. It makes everything else obsolete. Several years ago, uh, there was kind of a stir in the Nigerian high court when there was this man who was on trial for a significant offense, and he was acquitted of his charges. But he wasn't happy about that. He wanted to go back to prison. He created such a stir that six court officials had to escort him out of the courtroom because he demanded, take me back. I don't want to leave this place. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. Though we know the gospel of freedom, we know the truth, we run back to our old chains, to old ways of thinking and behaving. So as we look at this passage, my hope is that we would run to the gospel and, and put aside any other ways of thinking about life. And in this passage, Paul is going to talk about three ways that the gospel is revolutionary. 
But before we get there, before we kind of look at how the gospel is revolutionary and what Paul says about the gospel, I think we need to kind of define what is the gospel. What are we talking about when we're referring to the gospel? Uh, One writer, I haven't been able to uh, definitively verify the source who said this. I think it was John Piper, but I can't say that for sure. Uh, He defined the gospel this way. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. It's good news that's rooted in history that Christ came to the earth, he died on the cross, he rose again, but that has implications for our lives. It means that we can have new life, we can have joy, we can have a relationship with God. And so that's the gospel that Paul proclaims. And he says that gospel has revolutionary uh, tendencies. And the first thing he says is the gospel has revolutionary power. Paul, again, is arguing for the legitimacy of his ministry, and he argues that the evidence for the authenticity of his ministry is the effects that his gospel has on people. That people's hearts and people's lives have been changed by his ministry. In verse 6, he says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Old Testament, God gave the people of Israel the law and the Ten Commandments and, and all of the things in the Old Testament. And he said, do these things and you will live. But nobody could keep the law. No one could do all the things that the law required because the law didn't have the ability to change people's hearts. Uh, the famous child psychologist Robert Coles once told a story in his graduate uh, class in Harvard University. He told about a highly regarded psychiatrist who Uh, had been working with this particular man for 15 years, and he was just kind of frustrated by his progress. He said, I've been doing therapy with this man for 15 years. He's as angry, as self-centered, and as mean as he was the first day he walked into my office. The only difference is that now he knows why he is so angry and mean. Dr. Coles went on to describe how the The psychiatrist had provided insight into how his childhood dysfunctions had created the issues that he was experiencing in his life, why he was angry, why he was bitter, but it wasn't able to change its heart. Coles asked this, could we conclude that what this man needed wasn't just information but transformation? But is transformation possible for human beings? In a similar way, the law functioned as a kind of diagnostic. It showed people where they went wrong, but the end result was condemnation. The only thing that can truly change hearts is love. So my son, uh, one of his favorite movies now is Frozen. And so we've watched Frozen many, 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 many times. If you're not familiar with the story, and the story of Frozen uh, takes place in the fictional uh, town of Arendelle, And there's two sisters, one's named Elsa, one is Anna, and Elsa has these powers over ice and snow. Uh, But she's unable to control these powers, and so she can kind of inadvertently hurt people with these powers. And so she kind of holds herself up in her room, doesn't want to deal with anyone, wants to stay away from everybody, and then when her sister tries to reach out to her and people try to bring her back into the community, she accidentally freezes all of Arendelle, so it's winter all of the time. Of course, she's devastated. She runs away and and builds this giant ice castle, and her sister Anna goes to try to find her. Anna goes and finds her, opens up the door of the castle, and tries to reason with Elsa, tries to bring her back into the community, but Elsa can't control her powers and in the process accidentally 
shoots Anna in the heart. Anna goes and consults with trolls, and the trolls tell her that only an act of true love can thaw a broken heart. In the end scene of the, the movie, those who fear Elsa's powers are about to kill her, but Anna steps in, taking her place. Anna's snowman sidekick, remembering the troll's prescription, says, an act of love will thaw a frozen heart. And of course, in the end, Anna is saved, and Elsa is able to transform everything back to normal, and the, the winter is gone, and it's all because of an act of love. An act of love can thaw a frozen heart. That's the only thing that can bring true change in our life. And in the gospel, we see an incredible act of love for us, that Jesus, the Son of God, shed his blood for us, gave us the Holy Spirit to come in and make us new and take a residence in our hearts. And that's the only thing that has the power to change us. And I think as believers, you know, we know that truth. We know the gospel. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We believe in that truth. But I think sometimes what we try to do is we kind of default again to that works righteousness. And we think that it's all about our efforts and our performance. Imagine a husband and wife are having, let's say, a marital discourse, an argument, disagreement. The wife says to her husband, I don't like the fact that you're not around very much. And when you're around, you're on your phone, and you don't help me around the house. And, uh, you know, all of the, she brings up all of these issues to the husband. And the husband responds and says, I'll try harder. Now, really what she's really asking for, she's not asking for the husband to try harder. She's asking for the husband to be present and to get closer. And I think sometimes when we're walking in our Christian life and trying to grow in our Christian life, it's like we just got to try harder. We got to try to be better people. We try to put this sin to death. And of course, effort is involved in the Christian life, but before we try harder, I think that God is calling us, get closer. Get closer to me. Allow my spirit to transform you. Yield to my spirit. Because when we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, it's his power. It's his strength. He gives us the motivation. He gives us the power. He gives us the strength that we need to change. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's not our power. It's not our own strength. And the gospel is revolutionary because it has revolutionary power because we see in it God's love is poured out for us, and that love has the ability to transform even the most hardened, wicked uh, sinner and turn him or her into a saint. So the gospel has revolutionary power. The gospel also brings revolutionary freedom. Uh, in verse 17, it says, nah, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The gospel brings freedom in all aspects of life. Freedom from guilt, freedom from punishment, freedom from sin. And the gospel also brings freedom in the ways that we conduct ourselves. We're not bound by the Old Testament law in the same way that the Old Testament believers were bound by that law. And we see in the scriptures that God doesn't always give us an answer for every single question that we might have. I mean, we might have things, moral dilemmas that we're dealing with, and he doesn't always give us a clear answer. Now, why is that? Why doesn't he always give us a law for every single situation that we might face in life? 
Because the law tends to lead towards unrighteousness. The law actually can cause us to sin more, and the law actually can be a stifle to holiness. Uh, There's a novel by James Missioner called Hawaii, and in that novel, uh, it describes how this missionary named Abner Hale goes to the nobility uh, in Hawaii and tries to get them to institute some new laws. And one of the laws was that he wanted him, them to create was not uh, that there be no adultery. Uh, adultery was rampant in that culture. And so the nobles came back to him and said, hey, there's a problem. Like, if you say that shouldn't commit adultery, there's actually 23 different kinds of adultery in our culture. So if you say don't commit adultery, you know, everyone will think that, well, he's talking about this kind of adultery, not the kind of adultery that I commit. And if you try to list all those 23 kinds, well, some people will say, well, I never heard of that kind of adultery. Maybe I'll try that. Even the perfect law can't fix a broken heart. And throughout the history of the church, when we're thinking about the law, uh, there's been kind of two kind of equal and opposite errors. There's been, on the one hand, people who are legalists, people who would say, you know, you have to keep the laws of the Old Testament, or maybe even laws that we create for ourselves in order to be pleasing to God, and we're just kind of trying to earn our salvation or kind of to keep into the fold, to, 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 to keep our salvation. And it's all about our obedience and our efforts, not the efforts of Christ. But on the other hand, you have people who are given to antinomianism, and, and these people would say, well, I'm forgiven, I'm free in Christ, I can just do whatever I want. I mean, he freed me. I can just go and sin that grace may abound, as Paul says. But here's the problem with that. When Jesus talks about freedom from the law, he talks about freedom to do more than the law requires. So when he talks about freedom, he says, you've heard that it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you are angry, some manuscripts say, without cause, that you're just as guilty. You've heard that it says, do not commit adultery, but I say, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard that Moses said, if you desire to have a divorce, get a certificate of divorce, but I'm telling you, except for very limited cases, you shouldn't get divorced. And so Jesus takes the law and says, you can do actually more than the law requires. So those who would say, well, I can, I'm free in Christ, I'm forgiven, I can just do whatever I want, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you're free in Christ, you're not bound by that law, it doesn't have to stifle your holiness. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, freedom in Christ is not a freedom to just do whatever you want. It's a freedom to serve God. And when we believe in the gospel, there's a shift in mindsets. There's a shift from trying to follow the rules so that I fit in, so that I earn my salvation, to desiring to honor God because of what he's done for us not because of what a rule says. 
Living in the Spirit will often cause us to do much more than the law requires. So when I'm driving down the road, I see these signs called a speed limit sign. And for the most part, I try to follow the speed limit, more or less, <laughs> most of the time. But I'll tell you one time where you didn't have to have a sign out there. You didn't have to have a cop with a radar. And that was when I was taking my son home from the hospital after he was born. My son was just born. My wife had just given birth. And so I'm driving like 20 miles an hour. And I'm looking every which direction, making sure there's nothing around. I'm looking at the roads, trying to make sure I don't go into a pothole. And I was like the most careful driver imaginable because of love. Love made me do much more than the law required. Love made me go five or ten miles below the speed limit. And love in the gospel creates an obedience that's from the heart. It's not so that we earn our salvation, not so that... God is pleased with us to, to give us salvation. It's because we love him. We want to honor him. We want to serve him. So the gospel changes us in that way. Finally, the gospel features a revolutionary access to God. So there's a lot of talk in this passage about a veil and the shining face of Moses. And to kind of understand what he's talking about here, we need to look at kind of the top context of Exodus chapter 34. Uh, and in this context, uh, Moses has gone up uh, to the Mount Sinai, and he would go up to Mount Sinai, and then he would commune with God and receive the law from God, and then he would come down, and his face would be shining because he was in the presence of God. And so he would tell the people of Israel what God had said, and they would see his shining face, and then after they would see his face, they would put, he would put a veil over his face. Now the question is, why did he put the veil over his face? Uh, most scholars' most likely answer is that he probably put it over his face so that people wouldn't see the fact that the glory was fading. The glory is fading. He was communing with God for a moment, and his face would shine when he came down, but soon that glory would fade, and he'd put that veil over his face. And we see in this context, we see a couple contrasts between the old covenant and the new covenant, and I think this can really inform how we relate to God. First, in the Old Covenant, it was one man who was going up to Mount Sinai. It was Moses. He was communicating well. He was the only one that God would talk to face to face. And then he would come down from that mountain, and the only experience of the glory of God that people would see was Moses' shining face. There was that mediator. Moses kind of mediated the presence of God to people. So that's the common person couldn't commune with God. The common person couldn't see the glory of God. All they could see was kind of that shadow that was demonstrated with Moses. For those of us who are believers in Christ, we have access to the Father. Through the one true mediator, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth to show us what God was like, the light of the world who shines God's glory, we can see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We can have a relationship with him. We don't need a priest, we don't need a pastor, we don't need a spiritual person to mediate the presence of God to us. We have Jesus, the one mediator, who shows us what God is like. And so for those of us who are believers, when we think about that, it's an enormous privilege that we can have access to the Father, and we don't need to, demand, we don't need to rely on shadows. I mean, I'm all for preaching, I'm all for reading good Christian books, but more than we need to hear good preaching or read Christian books, we need to hear from God. You don't need to see the 
shining face from somebody else. You can commune with God directly. You can open God's word and hear the voice of God spoken through his word. So we don't need to rely on a mediator any longer. We can have access to the Father. The other difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the Old Covenant, Moses would go up sometimes to commune with God. I mean, it was a regular thing, but it was a specific time. For those of us who are believers in Christ, we have access to the Father anytime, night or day. We have God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us. And so it's a continual, present thing. That's why uh, Paul says in verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. It's a continual thing. It's not Moses going up to the mountain once in a while. This is the Holy Spirit living inside of us each and every day as we see the glory of Christ, have a relationship with him, and he transforms our hearts. The gospel offers us revolutionary access to God, access to God that the ancient Israelites couldn't even dream about. The ancient pagan peoples would not even conceive that God could be known in such an intimate way. When Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he changed everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel brings revolutionary power, revolutionary freedom, and revolutionary access to God. As believers, we need to dwell on that gospel, to stay close to our Savior, to preach the gospel to ourselves. Speaking of the gospel, the, the, the reformer Martin Luther once said this, Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Something, it's not just the beginning of the Christian life, it's something that we need to preach to our hearts every day. That every day we need Christ. Every need we, day we need His Spirit to guide us. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, there was a spy uh, that was, you know, going throughout the American colonies, and he went to this Hessian headquarters uh, to this general named uh, Johann Rail. And the spy came with this important news that George Washington was about to cross the Delaware and he was about to attack Trenton, New Jersey. And so he came and tried to share this message, but he couldn't get an audience with the general. So he wrote a note on a piece of paper handed it to a porter. The porter handed it to Johann Rail, but Rail was playing a game of cards, and he just stuck it in his pocket. And so, short time, George Washington comes, and he attacks the Hessian troops, and, and he's starting to defeat them and eventually destroys them. And all the while, Johann Rail is playing cards with that information in his pocket. He had the key to victory in his pocket, but he didn't access it. We have the key to victory inside of us, the Holy Spirit. But how often do we fail to yield to Him, fail to rely on Him, fail to obey Him? But when we do, it changes everything. The gospel changes everything, but if it's going to change us, we need to yield to its power. Closing, I'd like to share a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. He says this, the gospel, if it is really believed, removes neediness, the need to be constantly respected, appreciated, and well-regarded. The need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have power over others. All these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that, a concept and nothing more. 
Our hearts don't believe it, so they operate in default mode. Paul is saying that if you really want to change, you must let the gospel teach you. That is to train, discipline, coach you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart and into your heart until it changes your motivation and views and attitude. The gospel changes everything. The gospel transforms all of life, making all other ways of thinking, behaving, and believing obsolete. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us poured out in the gospel. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you that in the gospel, you've offered us revolutionary power, that through your shed blood, you offer us the power to change through your Holy Spirit to become people who are honoring to you, to even go beyond what the law requires to honor you. Lord, we thank you that you've given us freedom. We're not bound by a written code, but we're free to serve you with all of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that we have revolutionary access to your presence. We don't have to rely on a priest or pastor going into your presence every once in a while, that each and every day we can call out to you. We can bring you our problems, whether they're big, whether they're small, that each moment of each day we can have a relationship with you. Lord, help us to never move on from your gospel. Help us to keep it at the forefront of our minds. Help it to transform us. Help us to make us, form us into the image of your Son. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.